I've never had a desire to be famous, but the perception of fame and its link to success has always intrigued me. Andy Warhol birthed the iconic pop culture phrase, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. I don't think it's possible for everyone to get 15 minutes of fame. But in the entertainment business, if you're lucky enough to get 15 minutes, used it wisely, you can milk it and sustain a lengthy career. If you get 10 minutes, you can reach a lower plateau of fame, but can still experience a moderate level of sustainable success. From five to 10 minutes, you can be popular and quasi-famous, but you're not in the upper echelon. Anything under five minutes and you walk freely wherever you go. Ramon Hervey II, coming up on the Janice Adams Show. I'm Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Janice Adams. For more than four decades, Ramon Hervey II has been a manager and publicist to some of the entertainment industry's A-list talents. Quincy Jones, Bette Midler, Richard Pryor, Vanessa Williams, and Muhammad Ali have sought his counsel and confidence. He's the executive producer who brought us the Peabody Award-winning documentary about Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Chisholm, 72, unbought and unbossed. Now, to his credits and our rescue, comes his book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. Ramon Hervey II is my guest today. Fame. Wow. It's a thing almost everyone thinks they know something about something few will have and others will envy. But if you have it, or even if you don't, why does something as elusive as fame so dominate our media and mental space? That's what I want to know. How about you? Today, we get to ask the master, Ramon Hervey II, what is fame? It's an accolade. It's something that you earn for being successful. And I think that's where there's a lot of confusion. So I think if you focus on doing your best and you you and you dedicate your time and energy to being successful and, and you really hone your talents and you have the possibility to, to achieve things. So it's really, it's a merit. It's an honor that you get when you're successful. It's very difficult to be famous if you're not successful. Fame, obviously, then comes with certain professions and not with others. I think there's it's relative to every, there's fame in real estate, there's fame in being a doctor, there's fame in being a scientist. It's just relative. I think in my business, entertainment business, it's 
fame is consumed and it's people are obsessed with it more than any other industry because people are in the public eye and the business is based on fame. You know, every major studio, every major record company, they're all trying to create the illusion that their people are the most famous. You know, they're marketing and they're spending money all the time to create that illusion of fame and sustain it. Because, you know, with fame comes, fame is a form of currency. So it does have, you know, it does have economic impact if used wisely. If used wisely. You know, I was really intrigued in the book when you gave a numerical definition of fame based on Wikipedia. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think one of the things that when I was doing my research about fame, and one, it's not a, it's not totally new. And there was a portion of the book that I had to cut out where I actually went way back to the early beginnings of fame. And it was really came from the idea that leaders, mostly they were religious leaders back in Egypt, that realized that to influence people, they had to become known. And so it really started in the church and in spirituality to get people to follow. And they said, you know, how do we make our leader, our philosophy, connect with the, with the, uni- with the universe, the people? And, and it, that's where the really, that's where the, the genesis of fame really started. And then once I, you know, once I studied that a little bit, then I also got into the fact that what percentage of people, because I think people think that fame is really accessible for almost everyone, and it's not. And the Wikipedia information that I got, and then, you know, to back that up, whereas that per- the percentage of people who can be famous or are famous right now is very small. So this whole idea that, you know, if you, you do all your liking and following on social media or whatever, that it's, it's a recipe for fame. And it's, you know, the reality is, is that the most famous, there's only like less than 1% of people in the world who are famous. So the odds of you becoming famous, no matter what you do, no matter who you pay are slim. And I think that young people and anyone that is pursuing it needs to understand that the odds are against doesn't mean that it's not possible. Indeed, you write in the book that this scholar, Samuel Arbusman, that he, he came up with a clever shortcut for calculating the number in terms of fame in 2013 by using his Wikipedia's living people category, 604,174 people in the ranks and estimated the fraction of living people who have Wikipedia pages. Wikipedia requires a certain threshold of notability for someone to get a Wikipedia page. He then divided Wikipedia's 604,174 by total global population, 7,059,837,187, which equated to 0.00008 fraction. That was the likelihood of us all getting a 
social media page at fame. Ramon, do you have a Wikipedia page? You know what? I don't. I've never, I've, I've helped other people get it, but I've never actually created it. The, the standard by today is I believe you have to have three major, at least a minimum of three major articles about you. In other words, they don't count podcasts. They don't count anything where you're you're a contributing writer to a story. Uh It has to be in a major publication and you have to be interviewed. And that's how they, so they look at your total bio, but then if you don't have any covers, any media covers, then you don't qualify. People can get around it. They skirt around it in a lot of there's a lot of companies out there who say that they can set up their Wikipedia and they charge you anywhere from, I've seen as little as $4.99 to $1,500 for them to, like, they'll tell you that we can help you get the articles that you need and we can do this and we can do that. But what, what happens is if they're not legitimate, then Wikipedia can delete your page and then it's almost impossible to get. So I wanted to ask you this question. What makes an unknown known? Hard work. <laughs> I really think it's hard work and it's talent. I, I think that the, the, the driving forces, and if you look at the people who are most successful, at least in the entertainment business, they have talent. And they have a team of people around them that understand their strengths and their weaknesses. And they try to accentuate strengths and by doing good projects, meaningful projects and planning your career so that you get the most out of each opportunity. But it really is, it's a tremendous commitment and work to go from being unknown to known. And sometimes it happens really quick for some people and they become known and then they can't follow it up. They have that one big song or they have Mm -hmm. that one big movie because they don't really have a plan. Sometimes things happen by accident and they're not at that particular time when they got that opportunity, they weren't ready for the, the next step. You know, it just kind of came by accident. So it's there again, I think that's the, the, the uniqueness and the allure of our business is I don't have any uh, one, you know, I've, I don't know how many clients I've had over the years, but it's hundreds and not one of them is the same. Not yeah, one of them is path. the same. Yeah, their path is uh, different for everyone. That's the one thing that you have to really understand. And I think that's the hardest thing for, to teach artists because they look at other artists and they think that they can, well, if I did what they did, or if I, I want to do what they did, and it just doesn't work that way. You can't, it's not like, uh, there isn't the recipe. There isn't a recipe. However, I, I like the way you say it's different for, for every person. It's different regardless of the career, regardless of what, but at the same point, you say there are degrees of fame in every profession, in, in every field. So how did you go from being to known? What was your path? My path was uh, to be a sponge. I didn't expect that. I, I think I once I realized that I had a knack for doing this, I just really tried to research and read as much as I could. One of the things that I did um, as a publicist in the very beginning when I was really young, I was working at Motown Records and I didn't have a press list. 
So the way that I started to build my press list was that, and you find that people don't, they're not really that helpful. Like you work at a record company or you work at Rogers and Cowan, which was a big company that I worked with. And there, there's a guarded, and plus I was the only black person at Rogers and Cowan. So people were, you know, I wasn't, you know. For those who don't know, explain Rogers and Cowan and its impact on the industry. So Rogers and Cowan was one of the, was the first major independent PR company before they, before them, all the studios controlled the major stars, the Paramount, MGM, Universal, all these companies, they manufactured their own stars and they decided who was going to be famous and who wasn't. They would put them in their movies and then they would market them. And that's how those, the early celebrities were built by the studios and they controlled everything. They managed them. They had their artists, actors, they didn't have agents, they didn't have managers, they didn't have publicists, the studios controlled everything. And then as time went on, they realized, well, we we're at the mercy of these, of the head of the studio and his team to decide my future. And so it slowly agents crept into it. And then PR came into it, management came into it. I mean, they were the first in modern time to really develop relationships with artists without the support of the studio. So the, the talent started paying for their own publicity. And I worked with them. By the time that I started working there, they were about 50 years in. So, so had, roughly what time is that? This is in 1970s, and um, by the time I finished at Rogers and Cowan, I became a vice president. I was the first Black person ever to be a vice president at that company. That was, I started my career in London, England, and I did some publicity there for a talent agency. When I moved to, back to the States, I got a job at Motown. And in building my, getting back to your question, getting to my list, to I didn't know, I didn't have the money to buy all the magazines. So what I used to do was I used to take a pen and a pad and I would go to their newsstand on Coanga and I would put the pad, I would act like I'm looking at the magazine, but I was actually looking at the, the page where they had all the editor, the master page, oh. where they list the writers, whatever. <laughs> and then I wrote down their names and then I read some of their stories so that I got a feel for what they were, their, their tone, their style. And then I started to introduce myself to them and say, hey, I read your, like a person at Rolling Stone or at any of the music magazines. So that gave me an end to them. And I started to build my list. And the guy, he says, you come here all the time and you never buy magazines. And I said, yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to get a feel for them. You know, and I can't, you know, so I, I'm going to be buying some. So eventually I would buy, but he would always laugh. He goes, you look at 10, 10 magazines and you never buy one. I was writing and making a list. And he I, was on to you by that time, but he did not know that you were going to become not only a major publicist, but a legend in your own right in this field. So you've bought many magazines. Since then, now I can afford them. But back in the day, that was the one way, you know, that was a way for me to really build my list and create some camaraderie with the journalists that I would end up pitching for articles. It's getting to, I think that's a big part of publicity is understanding who you're dealing with and what writers are going to be complimentary or supportive of your artists.
You don't want to put your artist in a situation where, you know, pitching a, a journalist, a music journalist who's really into rock and roll and not into R&B. Yeah. You know, you're doing your client a disservice. So it's your responsibility as a publicist to know who are the people that are going to, who are, will appreciate the artistry that you're trying to publicize. Well, Nolan, would you read something to us from the book, perhaps from the introduction? And just give us a sense of how you came to the idea that you even wanted to write this book. The, the reading I do, I, I explain, you know, a little bit of uh, my theory and, and why I wanted to do the book. I had been coaxed and coerced by people over the years. Man, you should really do a book. I love your stories. And I was trying to think, I didn't want to do a memoir because I didn't really feel like, I didn't want to do an all personal type of book. And I felt, you know, that my time, I'm still very active. So I didn't really feel, I think a memoir is when you're done. And when you have hung up the cleats or whatever, and you just want to tell people, okay, this is what I did. Um, but I'm still doing things. So I just didn't feel, but I thought that I, the whole idea about the fame and the end, and I had this thing with Andy Warhol that I came across the 15 minutes of fame. And I always thought this is, I know it's not, I didn't use it exactly. It was kind of like a metaphor, but to me, that 15 minutes already was, you know, I became familiar with that term when I was in college. And I always thought of it as when I got into business, that 15 minutes, that kind of means like to me that what, if I could be with someone who could get 15 minutes, then that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be, I wanted to represent people that I thought could be famous and to get that 15 minutes. So I used it as a, a way to monitor. So if I, if I interviewed an artist, whatever, I would say like, mm, they don't really have it. They don't have it. I can't get them 15 minutes. Maybe I can get them five minutes. Maybe I can get them 10 minutes. But that's how I looked at it. And I kind of, is this person, are they magical? Or do they have something special to offer? Are they really talented? And those are, I tried to assess and use my good judgment to make decisions on the artists that you represent because they're your calling card. And so I wanted to do, and plus with the, the, the graduation from my days, when there was no cell phones, there was no fax machines. When I first started in the exactly. business, there was no fax machines. To MySpace and social media and how that's ever revolutionized and changed the way that we all think of ourselves and how you do acquire fame. To me, artists were always brands, but now today brand is, it's almost like you're not really an artist, now you're a brand. So... These terminologies have just been tweaked a little bit to help this whole social media galvanize and take us all over. But it's also, I'm very cautious of it because I think people don't understand media has been around for since the early 1800s or, and mass consumption of media. But social media really only started less than 25 years ago, 20 years ago. 2004, I think, was when MySpace started. Facebook, all the other ones from 2005 to maybe 2010 is when Facebook really became more relevant. That's not a long time ago. We've changed our lives so much and have so much influence. There's no other time in history has any media happened in such a short time to have the impact that this has had. And just, you just wonder how... What's going to happen when it's been around for 50 years and where are we all going to be then? 
and how will fame be looked at then? So those, all those things started to you know, intrigue me. Um, and, and I thought that through my stories and the arc of my life in terms of my own career projection, I could give some input and reflect on the changes that I've had to experience and to stay relevant in, in the industry in my role and capacity as either a publicist or no longer really a publicist, but as a manager. Um, because so many people want to be uh, young artists. They want to be successful, but they really don't seem to understand or want to do the homework on how to do, go about doing it. Perhaps you could just read a little bit to us from the introduction to the book. I'm, I'm just fascinated with the concept. <laughs> so let's hear from you for a moment. Over the past four decades, I've passionately invested my professional career in livelihood and playing fame game. As a seasoned proliferator of fame, I find it impossible to ignore our fascination and satiable desire and obsessions with fame, branding, celebrity cachet, and social media, influencer stardom, its allure, and in, in reviable rewards are more coveted now than at any other time in modern history. However, there is no fail-safe expert playbook or university that can guarantee stardom and fame. The challenges and strategies are not universally the same for everyone. I've never had a desire to be famous, but the perception of fame and its link to success has always intrigued me. Andy Warhol birthed the iconic pop culture phrase, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And I latched onto it and made it my mantra, adding my own twist to it. In the entertainment business, if you're lucky enough to get 15 minutes, used it wisely, you can milk it and sustain a lengthy career. If you get 10 minutes, you can reach a lower plateau of fame. Five to 10 minutes, you can be popular and quasi-famous, but you're not in the upper echelon. Anything under five minutes and you can walk freely wherever you go. Ramon Hervey, he is the author of The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. More with Ramon Hervey after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with my guest, Ramon Hervey. He is the author of the book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. And Ramon, I'm fascinated with this concept of fame because of how it, it contorts so much, but also how it can propel so much if used wisely. and. I think what struck me, what strikes me with your book and with your story is that fame, as we think about it, is such a fluffy thing, but you have used it to go deeper, to tell a deeper story about purpose and what that means. What was your purpose? First, before I go to that, you talked about being in London. What took you to London? I was a flight attendant. A friend of mine from college, I went to Whittier College, 
And a friend of mine who actually became very successful in the entertainment business, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, she was the first black woman to head up the Academy of Motion Picture Science and Arts. I found out when we were in college that she was actually from the same town as me in Springfield, Massachusetts. And she, when she graduated, she was one year ahead of me and she, she became a flight attendant on Pan Am. And she said, hey, Ramon, they're hiring men for the first time and they're hiring blacks for the first time. <laughs> so uh, she said, you should apply. It's a fun job. I go, really? Yeah. Okay. That's not weird. And, that's and she was based in San Francisco. So I applied for the job and I ended up getting hired. It took six months and, and I got based in London, England. And while I was in London, I ended up in the music industry and working as a, I started a, at a talent agency called Starlight Artist, and they had artists like the Bay City Rollers, who were a really big teeny teen bot teen idol group mm -hmm. back in the seventies. They had a group called a black group called Clint Curtis and the Foundations. They were an R and B group. They had a brother and sister act called Mac and Katie Kassoon. And the guy's name was Peter Walsh. And so I ended up helping them create a, like a publicity. I ended up writing. I wrote in high school and college and I wrote in the, for the school newspaper. I was a what did you major in? I wanted to be a lawyer. That's what I, I majored in political science. But when I was a senior in college, I just realized that being a lawyer wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I did an intern and it was just a lot of paperwork or whatever. And I was... That what inspired me to be uh, an attorney was really, I used to watch the show Perry Mason. And I loved Perry Mason because he never lost. And that's what, <laughs> I, and I did, that's what I want to be a court lawyer like that. But then when I did my research and then went in and did some into, oh, they said, no, you don't want to go to court. That's too much time. It's too much money, contractual. It just And yeah, I think the two at that time, everybody was, being a lawyer was the thing, particularly if you're black, a lawyer, doctor. I just, I want to do something different. And so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And then I, this job came up and I took that and just, I always wanted to travel. I had never traveled anywhere. It really helped to shape you know, the person that I became. And my first break in the entertainment business came in London and I ended up living there for four years. How do you go from being a flight attendant to being in the entertainment industry? I am hearing some linkages because being a flight attendant is about customer service and it is about interfacing. But still, how do you go from being a flight attendant to being in the entertainment industry? Well, the funny thing was, is because at that time, Pan Am was like the leading international carrier, Pan Am and TWA. And so, you know, whenever I got to work in first, I got to meet a lot of celebrities. And the celebrities, they liked all the girls. And I did, was one of the rare guys on the, so the girls would say, hey, why don't you come with us? You know, I mean, I met Richie Havens, for example, on the plane and he took us to, he was playing at the Rainbow Theater in, in London. And he said, hey, you know, why don't you guys come to my show? So I used to get invited to stuff to do like that. And so I'd find, I got a little taste of it scene and being backstage with artists and, and that kind of stuff. And then I met a singer and we started dating and, and then I got laid off by the airlines and she said, I want you to meet my agent. And 
maybe he can maybe could do some stuff for him and so he took a liking to me and said well if you if you write you could you know i need some publicity can you write press releases and stuff like that i said yeah i could do that kind of stuff and so that's how i initially got started and then through that i got a job one of the clients one of his uh clients was a young group called kenny and i ended up working with this one magazine called uh, pop star and they really took a liking to me and they said hey we really like you why don't you come and be an editor for our magazine and i said oh that'd be interesting so that's what i ended up doing and i ended up going back to the airline for another a second run before this happened and then i got laid off twice and then i got this job and then i stayed over there and i did that and i was the only writer but one of the things i convinced them to do which is probably i told them if we want to be taken serious we can't just have one writer i don't want them to know that we only had that i'm so i made up names of writers to make it look like we had a staff <laughs> and used different names and tried to write each story a little bit differently but the real focus of the magazine were the posters so you would pull a poster out of these teenagers and we would you know feature the hottest teenagers and then these posters you could actually put up on your wall and the editorial was on the back of the poster it was a clever you know it was one of the first kind of magazines that did it but it was more that's why they called it poster star and that was the whole gimmick is that you get four posters in one and from there so when i came back to the state I was a, I really didn't have a lot of money. I was doing some part-time jobs. I actually worked at a photomat booth for like about three weeks, which was really depressing. I'm about 6'1", and I weigh about 185, and these are little huts. I don't know if you remember them, but they were little huts. And it was in the hood, and it was on Rodale, Rodale, Rodale Drive in the hood, not Rodale Drive, definitely Hills, Rodale. And it was next to a Pioneer Chicken. It was a little hut, and if I moved there, I sat in a chair, and people would, it was a drive up, drive up, and people would drop their film off and then leave there to be developed. And all day, I, I was knocking things over because my knees would hit the door <laughs> or whatever, you know. And Life they, has a way of telling you what's not for you, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I knew it wasn't for me, but I was just trying to make a little money. And I uh -huh. realized why I got the job was because they had women working there before and there was always robberies. So they thought like a black, having a black man with a little bit of, I used to get calls there where people would call and tell me that they were going to rob the place. And I would go, really? Okay, thanks for the heads up. So I would just lock it up and I'd go sit at Pioneer Chicken. I'd call the manager. I said, hey, some guy just called and said he's going to rob the place. <laughs> so I'm sitting here. I'm going to look and see if nothing happens. I'll be back in the booth in another 15 that, that is Now that is the story. You call, you go to the chicken place to call the manager. Heaven forbid anyone should call the police, which is another part of that story. Yeah. <laughs> Don't call that is because I couldn't. I, what are they going to do? If I call the police and I say, hey, I got a threat, then I, they'll say, let us know if something happened. It, it, this is in the 70s. So the police were not running into the black community there just to help out on anything. No, they still don't. My family and I lived in Amherst, Massachusetts okay. for like five years. But Springfield, Massachusetts, how did, tell us about your family and how they ended up in Springfield, Massachusetts? My dad was in the service. He was a life, lifer in the service. He was in the Air Force and he was stationed at Westover Air Force Base. 
So we lived in Springfield for the majority of the time there. Uh, but we also live in Chicopee Falls. We live in uh, Medford. We live in several different places around the longest period uh, that we ended up living in one place was in Springfield. In Springfield. That, that, was in, that was in the sixth uh, elementary school. In fact, I went to our, my elementary school was the first integrated elementary school in, in Springfield. In Springfield. And where did your family? There was two places. There was a Reed Village, which is where all the white people lived. And there was Amor Village, which is where we live, which was the, the Black community. Mm-hmm. And where did your family, do you know much of the history of your family? Where did your family? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad and my dad, they both were from Chicago. And my mom, my dad was raised in Chicago. Mm-hmm. South side of Chicago, and my mom was raised in Evanston, Illinois, and they got married when they were young, and everywhere we moved around because my dad was in the service. Yeah, I, so I'm here. California, so we, we were in several different places because of him being in the service. Did their parents come up on the Great Migration or something to Chicago, or were they long time from there? His parents were came from New Orleans, both my grandparents were from New Orleans. And then on my mom's side, they came from some roots in Canada. And then they came through the Midwest and ended up in, in Chicago. But I don't know if they were part of the the great migration from the South. The Louisiana part. But yeah. it is interesting I when the slavery when they when the trains and you know that because Chicago had the first ghettos in the country, but yeah. I don't know if they were part of that. More with our guest Ramon Hervey after the break. I am a 28-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing. Came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide. If only I'd known to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities? Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website, just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Ramon Hervey. He is the author of the book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. I want to ask you, put the question to you this way. Many people will know that you and Vanessa Williams were married. You have children. I want to ask you this as because your children, they grew up in the fame game because of both of your professions. As a dad, 
What do you tell your children about fame? Not a lot. <laughs> I've always tried to not make it feel like they were in the game. It was really not them, it was us. The idea which create a sanctity, a safe haven of being at home and not make it feel like they're in a, they're in a circus all the time. So we didn't really, and this is, I, I give credit to Vanessa as well for sharing, or we share the same view on that, that we wanted our children to be brought up as normal people, just to teach them good ethics and good etiquette, good, good behavior, good education, work hard. All the things that you that build character in 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 a in a person, so that they, particularly in black people, I think you just have to understand that your character is going to make or break the type of life you're going to have. So you have to be strong-willed. You have to believe in yourself all the time, believe in your dreams, chase your dreams, work hard, understand you're going to get. It's not going to be easy, and you can't make excuses. Just be prepared for any opportunities that you get, and it was never based on being famous at, at all. They were learning about fame on their own through their peers and whatever. And so there were times when I had to, when we did like little checkups, little, no, that's not really how it works. And I think with all kids, all parents, they have this and they have that. And I go, well, you don't live with them. You live with me. And at my house, this is how we're going to do it. When you guys get out on your own, you can do what you want. These, these are the rules for my house. You know, I'm not any better than anybody else, but I'm not any less than anybody else. I've worked hard for whatever I've accomplished in my life. And I don't expect to be pat on the back or whatever, but I just do what I think is best for my family and for myself. And that's what I encourage them to do. Be who you want to be. A lot of people are not, you know, they're not really prepared for it. If you really aren't solid on solid ground yourself, once you start getting hit by the, you know, and today, the, the, I think one of the hardest things is, is that people, is the access that social media gives to everyone to have a voice. And there are no rules on how to use that voice. So you can uh, say almost anything on Twitter, all these things. And most people in their life, they're not gonna be treated with disrespect and being criticized for every decision that they make. That just, what, 20, 30 years ago, that didn't happen. You'd have to really go out of your way to where the whole, you know, this whole idea that you can be canceled now just by like what happened with Dave Chappelle or any of these comedians or people that say or do things in, in a one day. Like in that one show that he did, it's an hour show. And because of that hour show, he, they wanted to cancel him, you know. So they, this but is were they waiting with some people when this cancel thing come, comes up? You wonder if certain people have been waiting for the opportunity to do that in the first place to that person. You know, I don't think there's anybody waiting. I think what happens is you become vulnerable to it because, again, the difference between what social media has done compared to what newspapers, radio, and television is the fact that everything is a visceral moment. So a story can break in seconds globally. That never used to be, that never happened. This has only been happening for, again, that short amount of time that I mentioned earlier. So that's a huge thing when you, 
that's why it's so hard to spin because there's videos and there's audio and there's everything that happens within seconds. So I don't care how clever you are as a manager or whatever, if it's already out there and you see, you know, that's why Black Lives Matter is all these things that you see on camera or the January 6th, you saw all these things happen in real time. So it's very hard to change that impression, that visceral moment where we all connect and we all shape our opinions based on that. So if Dave Chappelle goes up and talks about whatever he wants to talk about, people can go to there and make their own decision on what it is. Mm -hmm. They may not have seen the show, but they can click on and it's, they'll find it somewhere. I don't know what's going on with Dave Chappelle. You can click on YouTube, you can go to Netflix and you can, in seconds, you can see exactly what he said. So that's really, you know, that I think that's the thing with dealing with fame now is most people just are not equipped to deal with the pressure that it, the psychological pressure that it, of being judged all the time for everything that you do. And I just, and whether you can weather that or whether you protect yourself. Some people feel like I want to get as much as I can for as long as I can because it's it's monetary. It's not about the fame. What is fame? What does it do for you? There are all those other questions. What are the perks of fame? So some people do it because they want all the perks. They want to be able to go to all the VIP things. They want to be able to do this or that. They're willing to sacrifice their anonymity to have the privileges that are associated and the perks that are associated with fame. So everybody has a choice on how they want to treat their fame when they get it, if they get enough to where it makes a difference in their life. You know, and I think that's, if there is no, there are people that don't, they keep their families, they keep their private lives separate from their professional lives. They only promote projects when they come out. Other than that, you don't see them, you don't hear them. They're not on social media. They're not, they don't want to be seen and heard every 24 seven. They want, they don't want to be omnipresent in pop culture in that way, you know? Um, and those are decisions that usually the artists decide and they, they create teams around them that will reinforce whatever their approach is that they want to take. You mentioned that this availability of maybe a mistake, maybe not a mistake, but the availability of it that you can just go online. And it seems that one of the things that even heightens that is the fact that when you go online to look for that, you may never even see that. But what is just a plethora of people talking about it who may or may not have seen it either. And that's a snowball effect. Exactly. From what that visceral is, then you get all these other things. And if you, unless you're a person that wants to examine and make a, a, a fair assessment of a situation, and you're willing to take the time to differentiate the, the fact that the way journalism is handled today, it's not very equitable. A lot of these journalists don't do any research. You can put a story up and you can have your name on it and you maybe it didn't talk to anybody. So you have to examine and, and assess to really, I don't think you can just go that one time and say, I've gone in and looked at five or to a dozen different things to, to really get to the crux of what is this story really about? Because mm -hmm. this guy's definitely not, I saw something and then this guy's saying this. And so for me, for my own sanity, I have, I do that kind of analyst. I analyze information that I'm intaking so that I know that if I'm going to make a decision or have a point of view, that at least I did my homework. 
and I have a base for what I think shall be my opinion on how I stand on this particular thing. Yeah. But not all of not everybody is, is willing to do that. And when we're talking about the kids and everything, I think that's a, a culture flaw. It's a flaw that, that we have in our culture today that there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of people who aren't willing to work as hard to do what they want to be successful because we have this idea that it can happen overnight. A lot of the young talent, I think they, they're more concerned about how fast they write a song than how good the song is. And it like, sounds like it. You don't get an award because you wrote a song in an hour. <laughs> and you're, oh, yeah, I, I can write that. I can knock that out in an hour. And I go, yeah, that doesn't really matter. They don't care how long it takes. That's in, in my book, I just try to talk about the various, I've really been fortunate in my career of working with tremendous talent, some of the best talent, I yeah. think, for each from each genre, like someone like Richard Pryor and seeing his creative process and, what, and how he critiqued his own work and what the time that he put in, Beth Midler, um, Don Cornelius was soul trained. Mm. You know, Babyface was one of the, I think, one of the most um, talented songwriter producers of our, you know, of, of this generation since the eighties. Um, written, you know, Quincy Jones, even Rick James was a crazy man, but he was a really talented crazy man. So I think what I try to do is just show that everybody, we're all flawed whether you're a celebrity or you do whatever, and you, you show these flaws and then you show how do we work with the flaws And you mentioned, how do you define, how do you redefine? Like when you screw up, like one of my clients that in the book I talk about is Andre Crouch, who's a gospel singer, is a nine-time Grammy winner. And he had a major crisis in his life at one time that totally threw me for a loop. I just didn't expect it. And there was a way that we had to go about to rebuild his image and redefining who he was as a gospel artist. You know? I wanted to ask you, I don't know if this would qualify, but I wanted to ask you what the worst day in your life as a manager publicist was and how you came back from it. I don't know if Andre Crouch is one of them, but... The worst day. Hmm. I don't know if I've had a worst day. I've had some worst days. I, I think when, when you see a client who self-destructs and makes a really poor decision. It doesn't really, it didn't kill anybody. We didn't run over anybody. No life was lost, but they just made a really bad decision in their own interest. Those are the worst days for me. Mm -hmm. When you know that it could have been avoided, when you make a mistake that you know could have been avoided with just a little more thought or whatever. And those are always like, okay, it's that part of my job is like being a mop because that's when you go into not spin mode because again spin is that's it's just a slang like to me that's a slang but the reality is again what you said is redefined so when you when you know yeah you write in the book about a moment when Bette Midler decided to invest in herself could you read that section for us please Bonnie called me one day to tell me Bet wanted to talk about us working together again. I was surprised and thrilled. Bet could pick any major PR company in the industry, and she was picking mine. Signing Bet to my fledgling company would feel like a coup. 
because of the systematic racism that permeated in, in the entertainment business, it would be barrier breaking. When black superstars signed with white managers, agents, publicists, and lawyers, no one blinked because it was the norm. But I wasn't aware of a white superstar comparable to that who had signed with a black publicist or management company. Bob and I became partners because we wanted to build an integrated and diverse artist roster. I felt signing Bet might help change the, the racial paradigm and open the door for someone else of my color to follow me. Race was a non-issue in my business relationship with Bet. We shared a mutual respect as human beings and openly engaged in spirited discourse about the prevailing social, political, and economic challenges of the racial injustice plague in our industry and society. I was immensely grateful that she trusted my professional acumen enough to sign me based on merit. That's all you can ask for. It was an enormous boost for my self-confidence and helped elevate the stature of our company. Beth had several projects lined up that she wanted to publicize, a new studio album, Atlantic National Contour, and her second book, The Side of David Divine, which was released by Crown Publishers. Nothing was happening in the film area and she was still reeling from the fallout from Jinx. The tour was Bed's first national concert tour without Aaron. It started on December 8th, 1982, and had two segments, a winter leg from December to March and summer leg from June to September. It included major theaters and amphitheaters in the summer. In many markets, engagements were booked for multiple dates. The summer leg allowed time to support her studio album, No Frills, which had an August 1 release. She capped the tour with a seven-day engagement at Radio City Music Hall. That the Bette Midler tour that you referred to, depending on how you say it, D-E-T-O-U-R is either detour, yeah, yeah. on the tour, or detour yeah. no, no, it's, is it's, wonderful. Yeah. It's not detour like with a U. It's detour. But she had taken a detour too. Uh, well, you know, the, the thing with Beth was at the time I worked with her twice. So I, I first met Beth when I worked at Rogers and Cowan. And I, I loved working with her. She's one of my favorite people in life. And I still friends with her. Um, but when I decided to leave Rogers and Cowan and go out on my own, I told Bet, I said, I hope I get a chance to work with you again, but I need to do this for myself right now. And she gave me your blessings and whatever. And she was the first big artist from who I had met at Rogers and Cowan, who um, I did end up representing several others that I met at Rogers and Cowan when I went out on my own, but she was the first one. Yes. And she came to me and it was at a, a low time in her career because she had done a movie called Jinx and she got really beat up by the press in this. And it was a failure. The movie was a failure. And she really had a breakdown. I didn't realize it was a breakdown until I started working with her again. And then she told me like this really messed me up and whatever. But yeah, she was uh, a great live, but I mean, one of the best live performers I think I've ever worked with. And and I learned a lot from her because she did everything. She's done Broadway. She did TV. I worked on Arter Bus, which was an HBO special, two HBO specials. I worked on The Rose with her, which was her first motion picture. She was nominated for an Academy Award. And I worked on several stand, sold out tours and records and 
I worked on two books, hers, one, the second time I worked when I was on my own, I worked on a book called The Saga of Baby Divine. And that book was a New York Times bestseller list. And that was a great tour. That's what, that's, that's detailed in the book as well. The, that tour, yeah. we accomplished a lot of stuff with that tour that had never been done before. This has been an extraordinary journey and conversation. So would you read for us in closing from the end of the book? To reach stardom or superstardom today, I always emphasize the importance of being aware of the tools and prevailing media and distribution platforms that can influence the development of their brand. And to take the initiative to learn and understand the technical language and keywords, such as brand platforms, messaging, elevator pitch, clicks, views, viral campaigns, posts, algorithms, analytics, demographics, usernames, passwords, memes, characters, and hashtags that can impact their ability to be successful. It requires sweat equity and unflinching self-confidence. I've dedicated years to honing and refining my own talents and methodology as a publicist and manager. Along my path, I've shaped my philosophical view of fame and success based on what I've learned from firsthand interactions with famous artists I've represented. I love that success and fame don't come with a warranty. It's been a conversation that took us in interesting directions as you have taken us with your work and with those people whose lives you brought and made known to us. Ramon Hervey, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Our thanks to Ramon Hervey II and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For more about our guest and his book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes, visit my website, ChanusAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. Produced in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Robayo. This show is a production of Janus Adams LLC, all rights reserved. <laughs>